Hi, everyone, and thanks for tuning in to the Seven Millennial Podcast, a community dedicated to ambitious and successful millennials. And today with us, we have Ben Walters. He was born and raised in Toronto, Ontario, and after graduating McGill University, he ventured into the corporate world trying to figure out what he wanted to do with his life. After a couple stints in management consulting, he started his own company, Feedback App, an app aimed at reducing food waste. It was a great idea, and he quickly fell in love with the startup, everything. However, well, you'll need to listen to the rest of the episode to learn what happened. But currently, the team keeps crushing it at Hopper Travel. This year was a bit challenging for a lot of companies, especially in the travel industry. But challenges present opportunities, and Ben is very optimistic. Learn from him some tips and advice on how to deal with difficult times, how to be successful as an entrepreneur, and what things you should be doing when you start a company and what things you should be watching out for. There's lots of takeaways in this episode. You don't want to miss it. And with that, let's welcome Ben. Hi, Ben. Super happy to have you here with us. How are you? I'm doing pretty great, which is a weird thing to say with everything going on. But uh, yeah, just feeling grateful for my life to be relatively normal in the midst of the world crumbling all around us. I I love the attitude of gratefulness, especially this year. It is much needed. Okay, well, first of all, thank you for being here with us. I love your story. I love where you're coming from. You're a serial entrepreneur. You are ex-management consultant. You have post-secondary education. You've started startups, and now you're living the corporate life. And I mean, it's quotation marks because one of the things you say that, you know, your idea of corporate life is all about cubicles and definitely not like that at Hopper. So my first question would be, can you tell us more a little bit about your story and how you ended up at Hopper? Sure. Yeah. Happy to. Definitely. You cannot call Hopper corporate. It's closer to a 10 person company than it is to a, to a corporation. But yeah. So went to McGill, studied business. Don't really think that's a good idea. I think you learn business on the go and not in a classroom, but listen, live and learn. Thought I wanted to be in investment banking, read the big short on a beach in Mexico one summer and like it all fell apart and decided I couldn't do it or couldn't do the finance world. And so I ended up venturing into consulting because I figured it would give me a bit of a opportunity to scope out different industries and different roles and try to like actually understand what I did want by process of elimination. It didn't really help too much. I was still kind of confused and a generalist and, and wasn't exactly sure what the future looked like. And then my cousin knocked on my door and had this great startup idea to help restaurants reduce food waste. And I got instantly very excited. And I'm a pretty impulsive person. So I, I just jumped in headfirst. We started a company called Feedback in Toronto. The first year was really exciting growth. We raised money, all the good things that like, yeah, entrepreneurs generally struggle to do. It was a really tough, but very exciting first year. But you took a step back or we took a step back and realized the business model just wasn't there. We didn't feel like we could add value. So we were building a marketplace and we didn't feel like we could add value to all stakeholders. Um, and so we do what every startup that has issues to us. And we, we pivoted to thinking about like B2B pricing software for restaurants and made the mistake of not actually speaking to the only people who were going to pay us, which was restaurants. Restaurants weren't ready for dynamic pricing. And so we didn't have a lot of customers and it's hard to build a business without customers. And so we were running out of money and reached out to our investors and said, hey, this is tough, tricky. We don't know what the future looks like. And a couple of them wanted to introduce us to some folks. And one of those people was Fred Lalonde, the CEO of Hopper. And so I didn't understand it at the time, but I jumped on a call with Fred and instantly understood that they were looking for sort of entrepreneurial spirit. They wanted to start an office in Toronto. They wanted to start this essentially pilot an org structure that would allow them to sort of distribute ownership across the organization to small cross-functional teams and allow them to really take ownership over a specific task. And so he sort of said, hey, come on board, bring the team over. We'll give you a new project. We don't want to go at it with our biases. So the fact that you know nothing about what we do is actually a good thing. And a few months later, we went over to Hopper and it's been an amazing year and four months or so since. I love the story. So clearly not looking back. Okay. So first of all, let's unpack. Dynamic pricing maybe wasn't a thing before. Now, what about 2020 and COVID? Do you think that model would work now considering that Uber and Skip and everybody's having the you know concerns about overcharging restaurants and fees and everything else? 
Yeah, I believe that dynamic pricing is going to transform the restaurant industry. The challenge is that when you're a tiny company, you don't have the resources to both build awareness and to sell a product. You need to really be solving a specific problem that resonates with restaurateurs. And so the truth is when you said dynamic pricing, they were turned off. And yeah, you could we tried to spin it and say, hey, is profitability a problem? And it is for every restaurant because it's a tough industry, but it wasn't closely tied to the pain point that they were really feeling. And so yes, I do think dynamic pricing is going to transform the restaurant industry. I think it's going to take longer than we want. And sadly, I think it's going to be done by a, a DoorDash or an Uber Eats or a company that already has their sort of hands in these restaurants' pockets. Now, what about the code that was left after feedback? Do you still own it? Do you still have it? Can you sell it? Have you sold it? Yeah, so we did sell the assets of feedback. So the app, the marketplace, the restaurant relationships, the customers, we sold to an awesome entrepreneur named Jayathra. He's still running it and trying to invest in it. Um, it was just like a small little asset deal on the side. In terms of the dynamic pricing software we built, which we called Gravy, but was really just the same company feedback, um, we do own that IP the chances of us using it are like slim to none, but we still do have that in our back pockets in case I don't know what happens in the future. Love it. I was just going to say, can you use it for Hopper? Uh, no, like Hopper could build what we built with like, I don't know, two days of a little bit of an engineer and data scientist time. Like they, they didn't need the piece of software that we built, unfortunately. It felt really cool to us, but uh, to a company that has the sort of data core competency and the engineering resources that Hopper does, it, it was impressive enough to get us in the door, but it wasn't impressive enough to actually use. Uh, okay. So I guess starting from the first point where the business is going well, the idea is scaling. You know, you mentioned in your talk that a lot of the times investors know nothing. Accelerators are just sometimes crap, most of them. Pitches, pitch competitions are really also not something to be trusted because everybody can slap some slides on the deck, but it's all about the actual product market fit, research, and everything else that goes into the business. So how do you realize that your idea is not good, doesn't fit the market? And is there a way to prevent the failure? The answer is that like you need paying customers. And, and I'm a big believer in the early days. I think it was like Sam Altman who said this, that like you would rather have like 10 customers that absolutely love your product than 100 who kind of like it. And the truth is that we couldn't find anyone who really loved our product. And that is the first concern that we had when it came to like the pivot of what gravy was. So to us, like if you're building a product the right way, you're doing the customer discovery, you're intimately understanding a problem and not coming at a problem with a solution that you've already built out. And so that's just like a classic first time founder mistake. We unfortunately made it twice instead of once, which I wish we didn't do, but that's the reality. And I promise we won't make it again. And so, yeah, I think at the end of the day, you need to find customers that absolutely love your product and can't live without it. And we were not able to do that. And so the way to avoid it is to follow the four steps to epiphany is an amazing it's dull but an amazing book that really talks about how to do customer discovery because it's not about necessarily product discovery if you're doing it right it's understanding first who those customers are and what that pain point is and the way to avoid this is not writing a single line of code until you've really understood who your customer is and what pain point you're solving I like it. But then the, the other point is, what about companies like Apple or iPhone, right? The people buy what they know and not, they don't know what they want to start off with. So, you know, it seems like when you tell us about the feedback and what it does, it makes sense. Was it more of a marketing? Like if you put a lot of money into marketing and ad spend education, would that pivot the business or you don't think so? It, no, no, it's interesting because it's like one of those cognitive dissonance moments where like you hear Ford say like, hey, if I ask customers what they want, we would just be building faster horses, right? And like, like that's the sort of Apple mentality. And on the other side, it's like, okay, understand and speak to your customers. I think the reality is it depends what type of company you are and what you're trying to do. And so for us, going back to what I was saying before is like when you're a tiny little startup, when you're first time founders and don't have the luxury of like raising millions of dollars pre-product, you need to really solve a problem and understand very quickly who your customers are because you don't have the opportunity that Apple has to have the customer obsession and adoption that they've already been able to demonstrate and achieve over the course of their lifetime, they can then just like send out to their distribution network a product that they know customers are going to want. When you're a tiny company, you need to be a lot more laser focused 
on ensuring that you have done the work to understand what that problem is. And so I would say it really depends on the company lifecycle resourcing that that company has and, and the timeline they have to be able to yeah figure things out. Awesome. Thank you for this. And then in terms of in your presentation, you also said that, you know, the business was going well, everything seemed to be fine, but you crunched the model and it seemed like the numbers will never work. How to make sure that you do the right thing the first time around? The truth is that like there are lots of companies to this day. I don't know if you saw DoorDash's like IPO yesterday, but DoorDash like has negative contribution margin on every single delivery in the US until Q1 of this year. So, well, there's a couple, I don't know what the lesson is and, and I'm not going to prescribe it, but I think you can look at it two ways. At a certain level of scale, you can make a impossible equation of driving value to all three stakeholders work, but it just comes at such an absurd scale where you've already raised billions of dollars and have are doing hundreds of millions of deliveries a day or deliveries or whatever you want to call it. So from our standpoint, we didn't want to go down the path of just needing to fund the business model that didn't make sense with venture capital dollars. But that is a path that many startups are taking and have took that is working for them. And so some entrepreneurs should go ahead and continue to take that path because again, like look at Uber, it's sort of the same situation. Uber, DoorDash, like all these companies have models that really the fundamentals are not there, but they keep saying, oh, well, one day we're going to have self-driving cars and then everything's going to work and we're going to have all the market share and we'll be trillionaires. And like, they're maybe right. That's just not the approach that we wanted to take. And so for entrepreneurs who don't want to take the approach of using venture capital dollars to fund a business model that doesn't make sense until they get to the scale where they can flip the equation and use their leverage to like make it make sense, in that case, you need to really understand the industry a lot deeper than we did when we started. We were just like really excited and had this fun solution, but like we didn't know enough about the restaurant industry, how slim the margins were, what the competitive landscape looked like, because we were just wide-eyed, naive entrepreneurs like first time entrepreneurs. And listen, I wouldn't do it any other way. It was the best experience of our entire lives. And I would do it again in a heartbeat. But I do think that most founders are doing things a lot more responsibly than we did and, and doing their homework up front. Well, and that's, that's one of the things you said, right? Like there's a lot of businesses out there for whom models work. And there's a lot of entrepreneurs who are actually failing. And you, I commend you for being brave because not a lot of people are able to come on stage and tell everyone exactly how they screwed up. Because there's always, you know, you, you laid it out everything from even now we're having the conversation, you're telling us exactly what didn't work, why it didn't work and what the mistakes were there. So I really appreciate it. In terms of the marketplace, would you recommend building it? Like if somebody is starting to build a new business and they have an idea of a marketplace, do you think it's a good idea as a first-time founder without huge VC or should they pivot and build either B2C or B2B first and then figure it out? Yeah, it's a great question. I don't think there's a right answer. What I think successful marketplaces have proven and the only way to make the marketplace model work is to prove it in a hyper local, like the smallest possible scale you can. And so I like to use the example of ritual, like ritual went into Toronto, went into like Liberty Village in Toronto and like just made ritual work as a tiny little marketplace amongst the 30 restaurants and 30,000 people that lived in Liberty Village. Once they figured it out and tweaked a million times, they stayed in Liberty Village for like over a year just trying to figure out the model. Eventually the model worked and they said, you know what? Like we have the model working in this tiny little ecosystem. Now you can give us a hundred million dollars and we can scale this all over the world because we figured out all the tricky parts. And so I think if you're a first time founder, the marketplace model is notoriously difficult because of the chicken and the egg that every single marketplace faces. And, and that just means like you need supply in order to drive demand, but you need the demand in order to get the supply on board. And so there are exceptions where one side of the equation comes a little bit easier, but generally you're going to have that chicken and egg problem. And the only way to solve it is to look at a really, really tiny scale, make the model work on that tiny scale. And then you're going to have to go raise money to scale it because it's still, yeah, it, you're talking about small margin and it's a volume game. Would you partner with someone like Ritual if they're already scaling and they have the supply and demand, so to speak? How could you potentially go to them and say, hey, we have this other startup. We're not really competing. We can be a complementary solution. Would that be an option? 
it would be an option, although most startups know that like you need to stay so focused for such a long time. And so I, I would say that most companies that have cracked the marketplace model are just doubling down and expanding geographically and like thinking about how to add sort of incrementality. They're not thinking outside the box of how to layer on new partnerships and opportunities for good reason, because that distraction is, is a sure way to end up in disaster. I totally make sense. Okay, so MBA, post-secondary. No MBA, no MBA, by the way. I never got my MBA. I was going to correct you the first time, but we can talk about it now. I, I don't have an MBA. Oh, okay, perfect. Sorry, for some reason, I thought you did. Or maybe it was the, the post on LinkedIn that you posted about. Instead of getting your MBA, start a startup, take that 90 grand, 100 grand, whatever it will cost, and put all in the startup. And I think I assumed that you got your MBA and that's how you know. Yeah, no, pretty ballsy for someone without an MBA to tell people not to get an MBA, but that was the that was the approach that I took. <laughs> okay, so tell me more. What other options are there? Because you still want to learn. So what's the alternative? I think that there's different types of people. For me, like I don't learn great in a classroom, and so I should have put an asterisk that like this is for people who are like me and and aren't classroom learners. Like I, I was lucky that I like did well in school as a kid, and like but I did it for my parents. I never really did it for myself, but I never really felt like I was learning a lot. And going back to what I said about like my BCom at McGill, like I don't think a business degree teaches you business. I think getting out in the world and getting your hands dirty and rolling up your sleeves is what teaches you business. Depending on what your goal is, I think that taking whatever money you would put into an MBA is way better off letting you leap into starting a company because it is going to be the best MBA that you could ever acquire. However, most people, not most, but a lot of people who get their MBAs are doing it to acquire a network, which you may not be able to do as well in the startup world. Maybe they're looking to sort of jump the corporate ladder and to get a better job. And again, like probably taking that money and sinking it into a startup is not necessarily the best way to do that. So it very much depends on your goals. But if you're going to get your MBA because you want to learn about business, I would argue that you'd be way better off taking that money and starting a company no matter what the outcome is. I like it. And I agree with you on the fact that you know you don't necessarily need the formal education to know what you're doing because there's a lot of dropouts who started successful companies. And the other thing, when I went to business school, there was research done that by the time you finish year four or five, all the knowledge that you got in your year one and two is most likely outdated. Unless it's something like fundamental, like accounting or finance principles, right? But everything else is outdated, like marketing, think about branding, consulting, like all of this is going to be outdated by the time you graduate. So post-secondary, for people who are starting school nowadays, especially during COVID and you do it online, you have to pay the same fees. Would you do it? No, never. I think what school can help you do is hold yourself accountable. It's like the same reason I, I did like a brain station course. It's like I could teach myself SQL online. There are so many great resources on there. Like you go to Khan Academy, you go to Code Academy, like, like you can teach yourself anything these days. But what we're really bad at as humans is like holding ourselves accountable. And so sometimes you need to put the money down and have a classroom of people and a professor asking you to do your homework to actually like teach yourself what you want to learn. And I get that. And so I, I totally get that aspect of it. But there's just better ways to spend that money, in my opinion, that will give you the learnings and more that you would get from yeah doing an education. And, and also, like I think the world is valuing that stamp of approval less and less. I think historically, you sort of needed a master's in X in order to get a job in X. And I think people are starting to realize that like people that are passionate about some particular niche or industry who continue to learn about that industry organically are actually a lot better suited to thrive in that industry with no formal post-secondary education than those that come out of school with one. I resonate with the Mind Valley. I don't know if you're aware of what they're trying to do. They're trying to overthrow this whole educational system and Harvard and all of the big schools. And they're saying that what they're proposing is, I think under $500 a year, you can get equivalent education and uh, equivalent amount of information and access to it wherever you are, because it's going to be all digital and they're going to teach you the stuff that you need to know, like mindset and wisdom and like technical skills, like how to do your taxes and what you need to know. So it's very, very, very exciting that you're mentioning about education. So in terms of finding your passion, how do you do that? Like, were you always passionate about startups and food and restaurant industry or how? My mind was always, I always say like a capitalistic mind with like more of a hippie heart, but like I've always thought about process improvement 
and inefficiency and like dollars in and dollars out. And like, I see opportunity everywhere and have a notepad of like every single time I have a really bad idea. Most of them are terrible, but like, that's just like the way my mind works. And so I love the idea of problem solving. I love the idea of looking at the world and seeing it through a new lens and both changing my own mind. Like I love having my mind changed by surfacing new data or having a conversation with someone who has a different perspective, but also doing it the other way around and seeing something differently and being able to have an interesting conversation and convince someone else that the way that they've always seen the world is slightly off. And so I am passionate about travel. I am passionate about food, but like those are not my passions. My passions are, yeah, having my mind changed and problem solving and seeing the world differently than how it's always been seen. I I love asking people why things are done a certain way and getting the answer. Well, it's just always been done that way. Like to me, those are the problems that we need to solve and like dive deeper on because yeah, we just carry so much baggage and we look around and think the way things are, were actually designed to be that way. When in reality, it was just a lot of people just doing what has always been told of them. Yeah. So that that's my passion, but it's not, that doesn't lead me down a particular career path, except for, I guess, being an entrepreneur. <laughs> I, I love spoken like a true consultant. You have all the information, research and everything else. So then for you, it might be even more difficult to narrow it down, right? Because you love everything. And I think that's what I, I find a lot with businesses. I could never narrow down on just one because there's so many opportunities and you see all of them and so many problems to solve. So how do you narrow it down? You just hope for the best and find that. Yes. Yes. <laughs> like cross your fingers, close your eyes and just like keep putting one step forward. It causes a lot of anxiety being a generalist. Being a generalist where you don't have a particular passion is like, okay, what is my next job title look like? Like, what is my next role going to look like? What field do I want to go after? How do I narrow it down? Like, those are all like impossible questions to ask yourself when you're a generalist. And, and that's why people just like close their eyes and go to law school and then become a lawyer. What are you going to be in five years? Can you answer it as a generalist? I could never do that. Yeah. Like I could never. I literally have no idea. I would hate to know the answer to that question too. Like I'm the kind of person who like likes having no idea where I'm going to be in five years. Yeah. I think that's the reason people go and like become doctors and become lawyers is because there's a track and it's like, oh, you just do this and then this happens and you do this and then this happens and eventually you're a partner and, and you look back in your life and you're like, okay, well, that kind of worked out if that's what you're looking for. And being a generalist is like, what is next? I have no idea. You have all of these options and it's you're paralyzed by choice. Anyways, so there's just too many options. And it's something that, yeah, I struggle with and deal with, but could not be happier with where I'm at right now. And that's a lot of luck and being in the right time and probably my mindset of like seeing the glass half full. So yeah, you just got to hope for the best. I'm so happy you mentioned that because that was my favorite question for you, because I thought that you were going to be that kind of person. It's very generalist. And how do you deal with the mental angst and anxiety? And, you know, I'm sure you have those moments when you're like, crap, what's next? What am I going to do? Where am I going? It seems like everybody else has a plan. Do I have one? So can you let us know more about how to deal with those? I think that we are a society that's always looking forward. We're like very ambitious and driven and you always want to know what the next step is. And I think the best thing that we can all do for ourselves is like give ourselves a little bit of space, be compassionate and realize that we don't have to have everything figured out. And sometimes opportunities are going to rise when you live the way you want to live, which is hopefully with integrity and working hard and surrounding yourself with people you love. And so I think that the only way to get rid of the angst is to do the personal work to be like, you know what, like, am I happy right now? And if you're happy right now, you continue to be happy until something changes. And if you're not happy right now, like you need to really do the work and give yourself the space to understand what it is that doesn't feel right and go find a way to solve it. For the record, I do this all the time, but being in a place where you're really happy and still having that angst about what the future looks like is just such a human flaw. The work to be done is not necessarily to solve that problem, but to like do the work yourself to realize that like, having everything you need and practicing gratitude is actually just going to put you exactly where you want to be in the long term, hopefully. And then find comfort in that feeling of being present and grounded, but also looking into the future. I like that. 
Yeah, exactly. And and again, like I just feel so lucky with how things have worked out and like where I am now. And so I think about like where I want to be. And like my answer to that question is like, I want to feel like I feel now in 20 years. And I don't know where I'm going to need to be to feel this way. But like, can I not at least just stop and be so grateful that like where I am right now at this age and stage of my life, like I don't feel like I need anything else. Okay. For you, when you have lots of options, lots of choices, and I'm a big, uh, you know, this concept of the curse of choice and decision fatigue. So if you always have all those doors available and you always feel like a door will close if you don't pick the right one, how do you choose the right opportunity or the right, whatever you think is right? And how do you make sure that you don't have the fear of missing out? Yeah, the fear of missing out, I think, goes back to what we were saying before is like, that's doing the work to realize that like, that's just not the way life works. And you can't live with regret because you couldn't have gotten to the point where you have that regret without having made the decisions that you made. But to answer your question, I am lucky that I was born with strong instincts. And whether right or wrong, those instincts have taken me to where I am. And when you have so many doors open to you, like you need to follow your gut to some degree. You need to, of course, do the research and do the homework. But I think at the end of the day, you need to fall back on on your gut. It, It knows best. I think the hard part is... Uh, differentiating between your gut and your ego because your ego is really good at disguising itself as your gut sometimes. But I think that if you do the work and understand what your gut is telling you, it will often lead you to the right place. Otherwise, like, yeah, it's funny. I, I actually made the mistake recently. I was making a big decision in my life and I ended up going to all my mentors and advisors and speaking to every single friend I had about this particular dilemma that I was thinking about. And what I realized is all I ended up doing is I created a narrative for myself. I spewed it at these people. They reflected it back on me because they don't know my life and where I'm at and they could never make a decision with the amount of information that they have. And they just told me what I wanted to hear. And so I ended up just making a decision based on telling people what I actually wanted to hear and having them just reflect it back on me. And what I should have done instead is like literally stopped all of those conversations. I should have done the homework that I did, which I had already done. And I should have given myself the space again to do the advice that I just gave you to start, which is like, feel where my gut was and feel like what the right decision was and follow that and hope that it would lead me to the right place. I'm glad that you said that the gut instinct is the one you follow, not like an extended spreadsheet that you write the pros and cons list, <laughs> make the graphs. I use spreadsheets for a lot of things in my life, but not for making decisions. Well, not for making non-financial business decisions. I like that. I like that. Okay. So an advice for people to manage COVID, the isolation, the business downturns, because you've gone through it. Like, not, I mean, not during COVID, but with your business, you've gone through mental and relationship, obviously, and business issues, all kinds of stuff. How would you recommend people dealing with crap right now during this year? I think the answer is perspective. I read this book recently on stoicism. And in stoicism, they talk about this practice of negative visualization, where you think about all the things that you have, and then imagine not having them so that when you open your eyes, you actually just appreciate what you have so much more instead of sort of wanting all the things that you don't have. And so that practice, great. So you can practice negative visualization, but I think all negative visualization is really being able to take a step back and like see things from a different perspective. And so it is really easy right now to feel victim to what's going on. We are all victim to what's going on. We're all trapped inside. We all want to be outside, hanging out with friends, hanging out with loved ones. Like there's no doubt that we are victims of a situation. But if you take a step back, I would argue that most people listening to this podcast, if not almost all of them, actually are in the top percentile of lucky ones when it comes to what the impacts of COVID. Most people probably still have their jobs and most people probably have all of their families and friends healthy and not getting severely impacted by COVID. And yes, if you keep your head in the sand, it's really easy to feel victim. But again, when you pull it out and like sort of look at the world and don't think of yourself as the center of it, you realize that there's a lot of things to be grateful for and focusing on those things instead of all the negative things going on, I think can do wonders to our, our attitudes and mentalities. Good old stoicism. Love it. Ah, that's the best. Okay. So then for people who are trying to start their first business, let's say they either pivoting their corporate jobs, they hate their life. They're trying to start a new thing, new venture. What would be some of the advice from you as an entrepreneur? What should they focus on? What, should they make sure they have figured out? 
I don't think this is great advice, but I'm going to say it anyways, and maybe it'll resonate for some people is like, do it now. Like, I, I think that most people, especially like my friends who are like in the corporate environment, who are like wanting now to get into tech because tech is hot and sexy and whatever. The issue is that they don't realize that the reason tech is the way it is and the reason it has caused the disruption it has is because tech has a bias for action. It's all about moving quickly and moving forward and being okay making mistakes as long as you learn from those mistakes and iterate. And what they're doing by constantly surveying and using spreadsheets to make decisions and analyzing all the different different companies that are out there is they're doing, they're demonstrating the exact opposite of the mentality that we need and that has caused tech to be where it is today. And so I would say that like, you need to jump into it and you need to be able to take risks and you need to realize that you're not necessarily going to make the right decision the first time, but that taking that leap into tech or into wherever you want to go is going to take you one step closer to figuring things out and staying back and waiting and trying to just collect all the information, which you're never going to have before you make your decision is just not going to get you there faster. So I say like jump in and make it happen and stop waiting. Love it. Okay. So for you, for a person who has all the ideas and you always analyze what's going on out there, What are some of the trends or industries you think are really going to scale in 2021 or what should we focus on, pay attention to maybe research more? Yeah, it's interesting. So I think obviously like climate change needs to be at the top of that list. And there's so many ways that can go like carbon sequestering is starting to become very interesting. The fashion industry is starting to move quickly and understand what it's done to sort of the environment for a long time. So I think there's a lot of different aspects of sort of the climate change industry that I would be paying really close attention to as as well as like energy and renewables and all that sort of stuff. That's one side. I think another interesting thing going on is like what remote work is doing to employee morale and trying to figure out how to build culture remotely. I think a lot of people right now who are sitting on their computers and waking up and not leaving their houses and can't go into offices and seeing their their coworkers I think you you feel you're like, what is the point of all of this? You're like, what is going on? And so I think that it, it's going to be really interesting as companies say, hey, we're remote first and Shopify is not going to have offices. I think that we're underestimating how important it's going to be to find ways to still build communities around companies and corporate culture in a much more remote distributed world. And so that's certainly an interesting one. I think the other like, two that at least are interesting to me. I don't know if it's necessarily 2021, although obviously telehealth has been blowing up lately, but like, I just think about very important problems that don't have good solutions and like healthcare and education jump to like the top of that list and thinking about like you were just talking about new versions and new ways to think about educating people without it costing $200,000 and as well as like what healthcare looks like when we can both have like I know Canada, we hold healthcare close to our hearts, and yet we aren't able to acknowledge that our system is not great. It, it like it's broken in many ways. It's great in that it serves everyone, and that is important and an important tenet of any future solution to healthcare. But like we need to be open to the idea of making this system better. And so yeah, I would say education, healthcare, climate change, and then I think one interesting sort of 2021 trend is going to be just remote work and how to create communities amongst employees. See, I love the existential problems that you're trying to solve. I thought you were going to say like e-commerce, start a Shopify store. No, existential things. <laughs> but you asked me before like other advice. Like I'd say the other advice besides just jumping into things is like go sell one thing yourself. Like like I think the energy and, and hearing Tobias talk about how Shopify allowed people to make their first sale online, like making them an entrepreneur, like that resonates. I think the idea of like just getting out there and selling one widget doesn't matter what it is. And it being sort of completely on your own accord that you were able to do that is a great way to dip your toe in the water and just get pulled in. I so agree with you. Sales skills are essential. Whether you're a person who's trying to get another job and trying to sell yourself and what you offer or trying to start a business with the knickknacks or hair ties or whatever else. So vital. So vital. Okay. So the books, the resources, the things that you're consuming during this COVID season that can potentially help people and learn something. Yeah. I was thinking about that one. I'm a, I'm a really bad content consumer, like, because I don't like participate too much in, in social media and I don't have Twitter and all that. Like I, I'm not a, a follower of many people. I don't have like resources to go to. In terms of 
books, I'm like all over the place. I try to hold myself to a rule of like reading an even amount of fiction and nonfiction books because naturally I gravitate towards nonfiction and I want to read about like Bob Iger's life. I always just gravitate towards these autobiographies, which is so lame of me. And so I try to force myself to read an even amount of fiction. Recently, I stumbled upon James Clear, uh, who wrote Atomic Habits. And he's got a website that's just like full of really, really great content. Um, He's got a bunch of book lists, both fiction, nonfiction, and everything in between. And I started to just like hit those top 10 lists and have enjoyed sort of all of those recommendations a lot. So I think that's a, a good place to start. I would actually urge the opposite in many ways. I would say stop consuming so much content. Give yourself the space and like just sit in silence and get out into the woods and nature and don't feel like you need to constantly be consuming a book or a podcast or a new XYZ. I I think that our generation, like this is a millennial for a podcast for millennials. I think our issue is not finding good content. It's actually pulling away from it and like finding the time to give ourselves some space to reflect. I absolutely agree with you. I think and a lot of people on the podcast say the same thing. The thing that they noticed, especially what they're trying to do now during COVID is they were trying to be super productive. They try to hustle and take advantage of all the slowdown and start new things and learn new things and skills. And then they ended up burning themselves out <laughs> because they're always consuming, consuming, and your brain can't operate like that. You need to give yourself time to process the information, to let it digest and find the creative ways and actually preserve that creative space. So I'm so glad you mentioned that. Yeah, no, I I definitely agree with that. And like you said, creativity is the key here. It's like, yeah, if you keep your head in the sand and you look at a problem through this sort of very narrow lens, you may come up with a faster solution, but it's never going to be the best one. And it's really space that allows you to think about problems differently. And like that is what is going to change the world for the better. I like it. Okay, so some of the things that Hopper has been doing really well during this pandemic. And I don't know if you guys used to be virtual remote or is it just a thing now? Some of the culture maybe things that you guys are doing that's really going well. It's a crazy time, as you can imagine, for travel and and a tough time for the sector. But you want to be investing counter-cyclically. And what I mean by that is like you hopefully have a lot of cash on hand when the market crashes so that you can invest that cash and build wealth. It's sort of the same thing right now when it comes to the travel sector is the travel sector is in the gutter, it's in a valley and it's, it's a tough time. But if you have the patience and you have a strong balance sheet and you can be investing and innovating, it, there is no better time to really move the needle and to propel ourselves. We believe we are in the process of propelling ourselves to a new stratosphere in terms of where we sit in the travel landscape. And so we're really excited about what we're doing. How do we do that? We did that firstly by having enough money in the bank to be able to continue to invest during this tough time, right? There's obviously lots of great talent popping up and opportunity to do aqua hires or little acquisitions. But it's also been time to work, go back to our suppliers and demonstrate empathy and build stronger relationships with them for years to come. Suppliers being the airlines and the hotels and such. And so there's a lot of really exciting things going on at Hopper because we have leadership that has been through this before and has their head on straight and are able to sort of see the bigger picture and think long-term. And I think thinking long-term is the most important thing you can do. And the truth is that during these really difficult moments for the travel industry, if you can be taking a long-term perspective, there is just opportunity everywhere. And we are doing a really good job of capitalizing on that. In terms of workforce, like we've always been very distributed. We've had like a bunch of office scattered across North America. We've got one in Colombia, a couple in Europe and like Eastern Europe. And so that has helped in that it wasn't a big transition for us. We were always used to jumping on a Google Hangout and, and communicating through Slack. And so I'm sure we're benefiting from that because we were ready set up to do it that way. Yeah, I'd say the only thing about Hopper right now is we just need more amazing people to come join this rocket ship. And there's a lot of reasons to be optimistic, which sounds weird coming from a travel startup. Well, that's why I kind of wanted to get into, you know, I, I was trying to gauge, are we are we doing really well? Are we killing it? Or should I not ask? So I'm glad you share that, you know, it's been going really well. Yeah, like, so the reason it's going really well, so that there's a couple things. One, customers for the first time are valuing flexibility instead of just lowest price. It used to be very much a commoditized market, and now customers want flexibility. We at Hopper have built some really cool tools that we use all the data that we have in the back end to be able to assess risk and offer customers 
peace of mind and flexible options that you just can't get anywhere else. So we've got refundable ticket plans that make any flight you book fully refundable, no questions asked. There's no claims process, 100% of claims approved. Like tools and products like that, when you have the risk appetite to be able to take them on like we are, have really changed the game in terms of what we're able to generate on a revenue basis on a yeah, per ticket. So there's things like that. There's price freeze, which has been an amazing feature for us. Price freeze allows you to freeze the price of a flight from anywhere from one day to 21 days. And so you actually don't pay any extra fee. You just go in, you put a small deposit towards the flight. If you end up booking a flight or anything else on Hopper, you just put that money towards that flight and you get your ticket booked. And so there's a lot of cool things we're doing with the data that we've amassed over the last decade that have allowed us to build flexible products that are very, very customer centric, but also generate money for us. And so considering we don't, this is not the time to be making money on an airline ticket, finding new ways to diversify revenue has been really important. And we've really excelled at that over the last six months. I like it. So then if I need to go somewhere, if I want to book a ticket, does it make sense for me to go through Hopper or directly Air Canada, WestJet, any other airline? Yeah. So it really depends. Like obviously I'm I'm biased. And so there's a lot of features that will make booking on Hopper a lot smoother. Right now, the challenge is that the airline industry is going through a tough time. And so when you book through Hopper or you book through the airline, there is a lot of communication when a flight is canceled that is just tricky to navigate. And so what I'm saying is it's impossible to deliver great customer support, no matter who you are. Being closer to the actual supply, being the airline, makes it a little bit easier to get the full story on what's going on. But the truth is that airlines have struggled to innovate for a long time. And what we're building on top of just a flight ticket, those features that you cannot get anywhere else will provide a lot more flexibility, a lot more convenience and help you save money in the long run. And so, yeah, it really depends on what you're looking for. So now, were there some things that your leadership done really well during this pandemic that maybe other companies should know about or learn from, especially you guys done it forever in terms of remote work and managing teams and creating the culture and maintaining it? And there's some businesses who are just experiencing it and it's a lot. Yeah, this is a painful answer, but it's it's the truth is like when things happen that cause a lot of uncertainty, you need to move really quickly. And so we laid off a pretty large percentage of our workforce, like in the 30% range in March when things got bad. We did it really quickly. And, and our mentality was we're going to lay off a big percentage of the workforce because we don't know what the future holds, but we're going to cut deep enough the first time so that everyone else knows that their job is secure and that we're not going to have to do a second round of cuts, which boosted morale for like the company, the, the individuals who are left over. And so I would say that from a company perspective, building a sustainable company, when things get tough and tricky and there's lots of unknowns, you need to move quickly instead of waiting for more data to surface. And so our leadership did that and they moved really quickly. It was, again, a super painful process. We ripped off the Band-Aid. It was not fun for anyone, but we were able to recover a lot more quickly because everyone, one, felt there was job security once that was done. And two, because it was done with. While going through a period like that is really difficult to do, the truth is in three months after it, you don't remember it that much. And so you miss your coworkers and you, you feel for them and empathize for them, although most of them, if not all of them, have found great jobs since. But it allows you to really move really quickly, make a drastic change, move on and be able to like move on with things and think positively and think about the future. And so um, I would say having a long-term mentality and moving quickly are the two things that we've done well. And I think you're right because I hear a lot of companies, what they've done is they did the opposite, hoping for the best, but trying to, you know, bleed out basically. And for a lot of them, it wasn't the smart solution because look at us now, we're what, almost a year into this pandemic and it's it's crazy and it's nowhere inside in terms of stopping. Yeah. And like, imagine like the, our big competitors, the Expedia's and bookings of the world, like every few months are just laying off like thousands of more employees. Like imagine what it's like to work at a company when you just don't know how long things are going to be around. And so, well, it's not ideal. Like obviously nothing about this is ideal. Yeah. Moving really quickly, making a big cut and then being able to like take a step forward for us has been what has really saved the remaining pieces of the company. Got it. So for you personally, maintaining sanity during COVID, do you have a routine? Do you have a certain time you go to bed, get up, breeding time? What does your life look like on a personal level? So I wake up at like between 7.15 and 7.45, sneak out of bed. My wife usually is in bed for a little bit longer than that. 
I try to meditate before having coffee. I'll do 10 to 15 minutes of yoga on Down Dog, which I love. It's actually a really, really great app. Highly recommend it. And at that point, I feel like I've accomplished everything I need to for my day. And so I can sit down on my computer and just like plug in and, and do what needs to get done from a work standpoint. Obviously, COVID has blurred the lines between personal and work and shutting off and knowing when to shut off has been a bit of a tricky game that I think we're all figuring out. But I like to get my personal things out of the way first thing in the morning so that no matter what happens for the rest of the day, I can react and be okay with however it goes, knowing I've sort of checked my early boxes. And then, yeah, I get into bed and read before going to sleep just because it helps me fall asleep every night and I do it on a Kindle. But otherwise... Yeah, like we moved out to High Park Roncesville in Toronto. And so lots of walking in the park has been just amazing. And also just admiring these like the beautiful old architecture on these streets has been a lot of fun. So try to get outside and, and walk as often as possible. And then I'm one of the people who watched Queen's Gambit and like has just been re-obsessed with chess. And so I don't know, I, I'm like paying for a chess.com subscription and like enjoying it immensely. And so yeah, that's, that's what COVID has more or less looked like for me. You're the one person, one of the people who made the stats. It's been crazy. I love it. Yeah, I played like a little bit with like a couple friends, but now it's just like taken over my life. Wait, did you buy a chessboard on Amazon and now playing with your wife every night? Is that the thing? It's funny. We, so we got married this summer and she actually bought me a chessboard for our wedding before all this Queen's Gambit mess. So I actually had the chessboard luckily before that. She is uh, before the trend. That That's amazing. That's Okay, so hold on a second. You got married during summer. True. How was it in terms of COVID? It was perfect. So like our dream wedding was 30 people in a backyard, but like it just wasn't going to happen. Like once you bring parents and everything into the mix, things escalate quickly and we capped it at 100, but like even doing that was difficult to do. And then COVID happened and it was the excuse we needed to like have the wedding we sort of always wanted. And so we quickly pulled trigger and like set up a little 30 person wedding in a backyard and it was exactly what we wanted and awesome. And yeah, and I'm so glad we, we did it. That is very, very good tip for everyone who is struggling, cut people out and deal with the issues of, you know, oh, how can I not invite this person? COVID pre creates a great opportunity to say, I'm sorry, I would, but I can't. Yeah, exactly. I messaged a thousand people that were never going to be invited to the wedding anyways and said, oh, sorry, you were going to be invited, but COVID. I think it's such a great excuse because we got engaged this summer and everybody's asking, you know, when are you going to get married? What's happening? I'm like, I don't want to plan it right now. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I know. Trying to plan now is tough. I, I'm like that age where like everyone, all my friends are starting to get married too. And so we had six weddings this summer and actually everyone pushed back. We were the only ones that went, went ahead with it and we are happy we did, but understand that people wanted to have the big weddings, which was just never really of interest for us. I mean, you can always have a huge party for yourselves, you know, next year or the year after. You're fine. Okay, well, every guest that comes on the show, we ask the following. A millennial is, a millennial should be, and a millennial is not. A millennial is. A millennial is, is looking for work to give them everything. Income, friends, purpose, upward mobility, work-life balance. Like We're this generation that like thinks that our work is going to give us absolutely everything we need from life. Now, is it a good thing? Is it a bad thing? Is it achievable? No, I don't think it's achievable. I don't think it's a good thing. I don't think anyone's ever looked at work like that historically. And I think it's time that we shift that perspective a little bit. I'm in the process of doing some of that work myself to understand what that looks like. But I think realistically, it you shouldn't expect work to give you everything. And you need to figure out what compromises you want to make. But I think the problem is if you are looking for everything, you're never going to be satisfied because I don't think there are many jobs that can check every single one of those boxes. So you need to figure out what you want to prioritize and find a job that gives you that and be satisfied and content with nine out of 10 of your boxes being checked. I like that. I never thought about it, but it's similar to a relationship. Like you, you could never say that your relationship is 100% perfect 100% of the time. There's always sacrifices, compromise you got to make. It's not only that, I, I was going to say the same thing along relationships. We're also the generation that's like saying, hey, we want our partners to be our best friends and also like our wives, the mothers who are children, our confidants, our therapists. We want everything from like work and partner. We will pick these two things and then they'll just give us everything. And that's just not the way life works. You need to, again, prioritize what you want from those two things and be able to complement the rest of your life and fill in those gaps. And like, that's okay. It will also just make you 
again, so much more satisfied with what you have back to the sort of stoic negative visualization technique. Okay. So the millennials should be... It's going back to what we said before. It's like, should be finding time and space for themselves. Um, I think instead of spending every single hour of the day plugged in, it's really important to plug out. I really think it's important for our generation to not just be so driven and so obsessed with consuming content and bettering ourselves and growing and like making sure that it's okay to just do nothing and like really find leisure activities that give us that space. I like how we're exploring this concept of minimalism. It used to be, you know, we're consuming stuff and fashion and things. And now it seems like we're going away from consumption of stuff, but now we're consuming information. So we're just taking bad habit into different realms. Totally. It's like, I was thinking the other day about a crazy analogy where like, I, I don't know if, if you ever walk into a casino or if you've ever been to a casino, there's always like a lot of old people like sitting, like spending money they don't have in the slot machines, which is like such a sad reality. It's like, for me, like hurts, just hurt. I hate that part of walking into a casino, which I don't do very often. And like, to me, like walking into a party full of millennials, like on their phones, like scrolling with their thumbs is like exactly the same thing. Instead of the resource being money, it's like our time, which is time is money. Like we all know that. And we're just like, literally like putting time down the toilet, scrolling through a bunch of whatever Instagram or Twitter feeds. And I think that it's it's a really dangerous game to be playing. I like that. I think a lot of people can take a page out of your book and spend less time in social media. Yeah. Well, I, listen, I can do better too. There's always, we, we can all do better at many things. That's one thing that I'm okay at, but I have so many flaws. Oh, okay. <laughs> okay. A millennial is not... Defined by the title. I was thinking about starting this whole section with like a millennial, I don't know, whatever the first question is, just being like, hey, like we need to stop with the whole titling of like all people everywhere. And so I think trying to categorize people and put them into this bucket is like one of the biggest issues in our society today. It creates these like these lines and divides between people when we're all just human beings on this planet. And so, yeah, millennials are not defined by their titles like all people. This is so good about titles. Um, I had Eric Dermundi on a podcast a couple episodes ago, and he was amazingly the same you know, opinion. How can millennials be that one generation, but then your description always shifts? Like right now, your age gap is always shifting. Every year, there's new things coming up to millennials, and you can't define. <laughs> We're just people. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Exactly. We are just people. I could not agree with you more. I've loved having you here. I can't wait to catch up in 2021 or I guess later in 2021. Where do people find you? Where to connect with you? How can they learn more about you? Yeah. Um, don't message me on LinkedIn. Just send me an email, ben at hopper.com. It's the easiest way to get in contact. I'm like pretty good on my email. I can't deal with like a unread email. So like it gets cleaned out almost every day. And so just send me a note if you want to chat or figure out, find out more. What about your TikTok or Snap account? Yeah, good one. I don't have either of those. I don't, I literally don't have any accounts of anything. LinkedIn, I, I do have LinkedIn, but like I'm trying to pull away from LinkedIn. I have a weird relationship with it that I'm trying to sort out. Okay, well, thank you for being with us. Thank you. My pleasure, Maria. Yeah.